We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. Hey, what's up, Hellions? I am Cameron. And I'm Willie. And this is the Other Side of Hell show. <laughs> what's up? Do you like the way I say that? Yeah, I like uh, I like that our audience has been deemed Hellions. Yeah, well, they are. I dig it. Don't you think? Yeah, I like being a Hellion. Yeah, I mean... I'm a I, fan also. I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hellions works in more ways than one. Yeah. Everybody was like, oh, such a catastrophe. <laughs> And also, they listen to the show, right? We like to think everybody here has some sort of history. Yeah. Everybody listening right now probably has a past. Well, everybody's definitely got a story. That's right. So, Dude, it's good to be here. It's been a sec. So good. How you feeling? I feel so good. Do you? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I've been feeling pretty good lately. You hyped up? Uh, yeah. Ready for this show? I'm ready for this show. I'm ready for life in general. Just Are like, you? Yeah. What did you do today to get ready for life? Uh, I ate carnivore. You ate carnivore. Yeah. Okay. Pretty good. Is that like a steak or something? Yeah, just meat and eggs. Okay. You've been intermittent fasting 16 hours. When? Like just occasionally? Yeah, for the last 10 days. You've been intermittent fasting every day for 16 hours? Yeah. Okay. Every day. Yeah. And then you eat nothing but meat? Nothing but meat and eggs. Meat and eggs. Yeah. Okay. Just trying it out. Yeah. You know? And? You pooping and? a lot? No. <laughs> No, not nobody a lot. cares about that, Cameron. I just I care. <laughs> Fuck. This is a conversation of you and me. I'm just telling you, I'm good. Okay, all right. I'm good right good. now. I'm glad you're I, good. My my uh, negative self talk is at an all time low. I'm so glad Still. you're here, and I'm glad to hear that your negative talk is yeah, at an all time. Yeah, I'm feeling dialed, low. man. Good. Yeah. Good. So, how you about know what, you? You know, oh me. Well, nobody let me cares. Tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Dick. Hey, let me tell you about me. No, I'm actually, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, feeling, you look good. Feeling pretty good doing this new uh, routine. Um, feels good to have a steady routine. Uh, getting some, getting a little love and a little help from my, my friend David James. Yeah. Was on the Schmodcast. Yeah, he was on the show not too long ago. Yeah, and he's uh, kind of taking me under his wing, doing his whole fitness thing. Yeah. And uh, it's been, been humbling been good and uh and really just uh feels good to know that i'm working on myself yeah i'm so. happy for you man i know it's a good place for you to be in yeah it sure is for um, sure makes a big difference hey uh let's get into it that's enough about us yeah well, let's talk today about uh curtis curtis is a little savage yeah you want to talk about somebody that knows what's good for them yeah <laughs> who at least figured it out right yeah he absolutely did um, it took a lot. Uh, it took a lot. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he had to, uh, go through a hell of a lot before he's gotten to a place, um, where he is today. And, uh, and his, his story is really, um, amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to share it with you guys. But when we listened to his story, one thing that, uh, that we sort of were able to extrapolate from that and that we thought it would be fun to talk about, um, is, uh, being alone in sobriety is, yeah. is being alone in sobriety dangerous, Willie? Uh, I think it can be. Yeah. But I mean, you'll, you'll hear why we came up with that because Curtis, 
Curtis spent quite a bit of time in early sobriety alone, mm-hmm. which uh, is really unconventional. I mean, anybody that's been in sobriety for a long time or been around trying to get sober has heard, don't spend too much time alone. An addict in his own head is in dangerous place. It's a bad neighborhood. Don't go there alone kind of right, right, right. kind of information, you know. And he's he's one of those people that, that uh, really got his footing in sobriety alone yeah like and not just alone but completely alone. yeah he kind of came to a a different way than than a lot of us yeah Um, and and he made some decisions um early on in sobriety that are like you said they're outside of what might normally be suggested of somebody at that stage Mm -hmm. um and when we were talking about it you became pretty impassioned um because you (laughs) <laughs> oh did i right yeah, yeah. i mean you did because okay. you you know you personally in your experience it sounds like um you know you don't necessarily get behind the belief or the notion that spending time in your head is a dangerous neighborhood. i don't i don't think it should be there forever yeah right and that's one of the impressions that i got early on i remember i remember um, buying into that uh notion and i really liked uh, the way it was phrased, right? Because it's so clever. Me in my own head is in bad company. Or don't go into your own head. It's a dangerous neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, it's really clever because, you know, for a long time, it was my own thoughts that led me back into relapse. Right. For a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so there was there was some absolute truth to that, you know. I, uh, I, I made poor decisions for myself based on my thinking. I would think one thing. I would act on that one thing and it would turn out a disaster. Yeah. And so the one thing that, that I didn't realize when I was buying into that statement was, uh, I kind of thought that it meant forever. Like, sure. Like I'm always going to be in bad company in my own head. And that's just not the case. And I think it's important to, to finish that statement as you know, for a lot of us being in our own heads is a dangerous place at first. Right. Or for a while or until we learn how to deal with the way that we think and kind of understand what's going on with ourselves. Right. And so just leaving it at that, I don't think is a great, I don't think it's like super inspiring at this point, you know, but for me, it was, it was kind of true at first. <laughs> well, I think for a lot of us, it's true at first uh, for, for, for myself included. And I remember when I first heard that, that saying, um, not only did I think it was clever, but it totally applied to me. And, and that's the one they said they were like, where, you know, don't go into your, your mind alone. It's a dangerous neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and, and I absolutely related with that because that's how it felt. Like anytime, like I'm alone, I'm by myself. Like I start having these negative thoughts and then I start thinking that using is a good idea. And then I convince myself that it's okay. I justify this one last time, always this one last time. Right. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, there I am a a day later, like now I'm hung over or, or feeling the effects of the come down and, and banging, banging, your- banging my hand on the bar <laughs> saying, how did this happen yeah. again? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so I think that there is absolutely some truth to it, but I think we want to explore this today. We want to talk about it because, um, I think that 
there can be some benefits to being alone in sobriety and and there can be some some uh, some growth that can happen in those instances and so i think that where we're trying to figure out here is like when when does it go from being oh fuck i can't be trusted with my own thoughts to i absolutely need to spend some time alone right you know um because you know like it 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 can be it can be a little bit puzzling to know the difference between the two yeah. and, and when it's okay and when it's not. Um, for example, it's not a good idea for me when I hear that my wife is leaving and taking the <laughs> child for the day to think that, oh man, I'm going to be alone. That means I'm going to go get some Oreo cookies and check out the porn and, you know, and take advantage of that time alone to, um, you know, give into all of these desires of the flesh. Yeah. Um, but. Well, and why does it matter? Right. Because when we give into those things, we, we're punished spiritually through mm-hmm. ourselves, right? Yeah. We drop, a, we drop a level of, um, standard that we have for ourselves that we're nowhere capable of. And then we drop that down because we're indulging in. You know, things that we know are harmful, especially when you're on a fitness journey like you talked about before, you know, you're trying to change your body composition or the way that you, you, the relationship that you have with food. You know, if you're working on your sexual behavior or the the way that you believe sexually your thoughts or whatever, you know, all of a sudden you're watching porn again, you're by yourself eating food and watching porn. It's Mm -hmm. the same. I mean, it's, it, we found through talking about it on the podcast that, that that's the same fucking disease. It's it's still alcoholism doing what it does. Trying, right. Trying to fucking get us drunk. Well, and I know that because the next day I have the same feelings. <laughs> right. Where it's never satisfied. Right. Though. Right. Where where after it's all said and done and it's over with and I've eaten the cookies and I've yanked the little guy like it's it after it's all said and done. Like I still have those same feelings of how did this happen again? And that's the thing too. Like inevitably we will be alone. Mm -hmm. There's, there's just going to be times that we're going to be alone. Now the big book, uh, and, and people will talk about this in meetings a lot, you know, says that we, we have no effective defense, no, no mental defense against the first drink. That defense must come from a power greater than ourselves. And, and, you know, we get into a lot of different directions with that. One of the things that Curtis did uh, in his early, early sobriety was he went down to a library and he got everything he could get his hands on in the realm of addiction and recovery. And he read everything that he could that he could possibly read in the amount of time he could read it. And I, and that's what I think being around other people in sobriety does for us. It's kind of an educational program where they'll be, they'll be talking about like, I have this thing going on in my head and I have this thing going on in my head and it creates this action and go, Oh fuck, click. I have that too. Mm-hmm. And we start, we start learning about really what's going on with ourselves and the way that we think. And it kind of gives us defense. Right. Right. So that when we're walking home from a meeting, we pass the bar and that fucking feeling comes up. Like I should go in here and, I'm just going to pop in and see how Joe's doing. Like, no, uh, you know, we have another thought that goes along with it that goes, that's fucking insane. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Not right now. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the thing is, is that we don't know what we don't know. You're right. Like in, in those early days, like we're so sort of naive to any of it, that it all becomes information. The more that we talk about it, the more that we spend time around people that have been there, the more we research, like, like Curtis did, um, the more we're better prepared when mm-hmm. that thought comes. Yeah. Um, and I think that inevitably, like one thing I want to be sure to mention here is like, inevitably we're going to have times in early sobriety where we are alone. Yeah. Right. Um, we're, we can't be babysat all the time and it's not necessarily a babysitting thing, but like, the truth is that we just need to be able to reach out to somebody in the event that our thinking starts to return back to that old behavior. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's the important part when we talk about being alone in early sobriety is that we have at least a support system around that we can reach out to or talk to, whether it's people in a meeting or people that we have become honest with or people that have at least a somewhat of an understanding of what we're going through. Um, because in my experience, if I am alone in early sobriety, it's not long before I convince myself that it's okay or that this time it will be different. It's, it's the me plus alone time. First thought use. Yeah. Yep. And and it's not necessarily meth any like it's, it's more like what you said. Let's, I'm going to be alone. Let's fucking go out and eat. I'm going to yeah. be alone. Let's go spend some money. I'm going to be alone. Let's go find a prostitute. You know, like, and, and it's not, it's not somewhere I live anymore. And I heard Jordan Peterson say this on something I watched the other day. It was, it was, it was great. I, I loved what he said. He said, you know, the purpose behind us thinking is so that our thoughts can die instead of us. And I thought, wow, mm. wow. Yeah. Right? Like, I like that. Like, okay. So I have, I have the thought of, of going out and, and, misbehaving as a married man okay that's okay you know it's it's normal i know that because i've talked to a bunch of other people uh do i need to act on that you know yes or no what are the pros and cons of of that behavior how is that going to make my life any better you know will that will doing that bring me any closer to my goals will that make my relationships that i have more impactful or, or more meaningful and, and when I go down that road of questioning those things, those are all done inside of my head. And, and it wasn't like that early on. It's like that now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, you know, so now me being in my own head isn't necessarily a dangerous place. It's a good spot for me to kind of analyze my life and what I really want. It's okay for me to go in and think about using or drinking or cheating or lying or whatever. Um, because, Thinking about it is not doing it. And in early sobriety, I thought this shit would go away. And I heard people telling me that, you know, at 30, 40 years, they still think about getting drunk. And I'm like, fucking seriously? Like, you're still thinking about it? And I understand what they're saying. It's, it's not a consideration, right? It's not like I'm seriously considering a drink. It's a tempting thought that pops up in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that I don't have to act out on. It's, it's there. Yeah. I've come to accept that it's there and that there's this part of me that will 
believes now that it will always be there. So, yeah. All yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I remember thinking too, in early sobriety, like really being thrown by the idea that, that, um, that I would constantly go back to thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Like, like you said, anytime that I'm alone, like that's where my thought goes or anytime that I'm aware of a time where I will be alone or anytime that an opportunity really is presented where it's like, okay, I could totally do this. Like, um, that the thought pops up. Yeah. And I remember thinking in early sobriety, like, am I always going to have to navigate this first idea? Like this, is this always going to be my first thought to use? And like, the further and further I get like in sobriety, the more that I'm not going to say the thought goes away, but what I will say is that it's, it's not something I seriously consider. Right. right? And it's short lived. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like it's not anything that I'm ever like, Oh yeah, I totally could do that. Like, yeah, let's, let's maybe. Okay. 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 So if I go now to the liquor store, you know what I mean? And yeah. start playing it out. But but yes, it is every once in a while, it is still a thing and, or it comes out in other ways, right? Where it's like, I do think about like food or sex or, you know, some sort of gratifying behavior that is negative that I will regret later, yeah. you know? Um, and so the, the good part of that to me is what I like knowing is that back in the day I used to do this with alcohol, right? I used to always think about, okay, well, and drugs too, I'll say, um, pain pills for me was a big thing. So, um, the minute that I'm, I'm presented with like an opportunity to be alone, I'll, I'll have that thought, oh man, it might be nice to, you know, get, get a pint and grab a couple pills. Um, and then I would navigate around that and say, yeah, but you know, like, but also I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm doing this really yeah. good thing. And like, that's a real surefire way for me to fuck up how good things are right now. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, like I said, as more and more and more time progressed, I wouldn't actually consider acting on that notion. What that means for me is that now when it happens with food or it happens with pornography or it happens with any of those things that I might be dealing with now, it means that the more I navigate it and the more I get through it and past it, the better at it I will get. Right. And it will no longer be a serious consideration, just like the booze used to be. So there's hope that comes from mm -hmm. that, yeah. um, where it's like, Hey, I've done this with booze. Same thing will apply. Yeah. I'm going to think about it. Yeah. The thought will pop up. Yeah. Maybe I'll even seriously consider it, but the more I move around it and move past it, the better I'll get at that. Yep. And the less likely it is that it will actually happen. Very well right? put. Yeah. So I mean, you know, recovery in action, right? Like that, like that, that's recovery in a nutshell, like having a thought and not acting on it, I guess. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, you know, what, what do I really want? And, and, and to move forward, like, okay. <clears throat> so those are some of the things that, that are tempting when we're alone, but also, uh, I've done a lot of spiritual growth being alone. Yes. I've, I've had a lot of growth. Like, like I wrote my fourth step alone. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a thorough and honest four step. I was by myself, you know, um, I didn't sit with a bunch of other people or in the middle of a meeting and write out my four step. I didn't think about my resentments and get them on paper with other people. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And so there was growth there. You're like, 
like uh, morning meditation or a lot of times I, I exercise alone a lot. Like yeah. I go to the gym by myself and, mm-hmm. and, and so there's, there's some, there's some routines that we can get into and there's a lot of growth that we can do by ourselves. Yeah. Right? Have you ever, have you ever done any step work or anything like that with other people like pen to paper work with other people? Yeah. Yeah. Have you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've also done it alone. Um, when I was first out of treatment, we put together a group of people who had been through treatment who would get together every week and continue working on that stuff. Okay. Um, but like that being said, eventually I got a sponsor and I'm working on this stuff alone. I, I think that the difference becomes because I'm always like, this is, this is where my thinking goes today. Right? Like I'll be having a hard time or feel like I'm struggling or just doing a lot more head running than normal. And you know, just kind of feeling a little ungrounded all over the place, a little out there in the ether. And just maybe the negative self-talk is, is, uh, is, is happening a little bit more than normal. And so I'll always have this notion. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to take, I'm just going to take the day off of work. Like, okay. Mental health day, right? Like this is a thing. People, Uh people say, I'm going to take a mental health day. And, and I'm like, I'm going to take a mental health day and go get a bunch of Oreos (laughs) and, you know, and get a bunch of candy and just veg out on the couch and, and disconnect, disconnect and isolate, not talk to anybody, you know, and like, and this is my thinking. And I'm like, that sounds like a good way for me to live in the disease. Yeah. Right. Or I can take a mental health day. I can go on a hike. I can do some meditation in the mountains. I can call people I've been meaning to talk to for a while. Right. Or I can, and I can live in the solution. So like when I'm taking time specifically, um, to live in the solution, as opposed to designate that time for the problem, like spending that time in the problem, like it's a much better way for me to move towards that spiritual growth or move towards that, um, you know, sense of ease and comfort that should come from, um, a sober lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but man, you know, like I always go through that, this or that, like, am I going to spend today in the solution or am I going to spend today in the problem? (laughs) You know? Yeah. The fucker. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Like I have had great moments, um, where I'm alone and, and achieve some really good growth clarity. Um, and clarity, you know, like in, in those moments alone. But I don't know. I think that, you know, one thing that the book says is that before we take certain steps, it's good that we have a, um, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's good if we have a solid foot or a solid grasp on sobriety yeah. and that we're on the sober beam. Yeah. Right? Cause it's tricky. This yeah. fucking disease is tricky. And I believe in a disease. It's tricky. Yeah. You know, we end up very confident. A lot of times we're, we're fucking rocking it out. We got, you know, a year or two years of sobriety. We're fucking, we're at a place where we've gone to movies by ourselves. We've, we've, you know, been on spiritual walks by ourselves. We've, you know, done these things alone. And we're starting to think that, you know, we got this, this, disease thing by the balls we have our we have all of our our things in position we end up at a roadside gas station for lunch and all of a sudden you know convinced that 
you know, one beer surely, surely can't help. I probably fine, probably making too big of a deal out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so I think, I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, a tricky area of, of how much to spend alone and how much not to. And, and I just, I, I go through and I trust the people that have 20, 30, you know, 15, 25, like, like these long amounts of sobriety who, who talk about these things. I just trust that, that what they say is, is accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and I find, I try to find the people that I resonate with and that I connect with on a, on like a, a chemical or emotional or spiritual level where I'm really tuned into the message that they're saying and they're saying, you know, be careful, like watch your thoughts, watch right. your behaviors. You know, if you strain too far from the things that we're working, there might be some attention that needs to be made. Right. So if, if I have a certain amount of meetings that I've been going to and I have a certain conversation that I've been having regularly with certain people and I have this certain amount of time alone and the certain amount of time in fitness in any of those areas, I start spending too much time or not enough time. I start spending too much time alone, not enough time alone. I start my, my shit starts getting squirrely, mm-hmm. starts getting squirrely and I don't like it. Right. And, and I end up in this place where I start thinking askew, start thinking scattered, askew. scattered. Yeah. And, and, and I, I become unfocused on the importance of what I'm feeding myself spiritually mentally physically emotionally and and that's where all this this uh the the nutrition that i need in all those areas come from me putting in the work to get that stuff like none of it just comes to me i don't just wake up in the morning and i'm like all spiritually fit and my belly's completely full and i'm not hungry and i'm perfectly hydrated and and i have new knowledge of whatever it is I'm studying at that time and direction in my life. Like I wake up in the morning generally, even now with some sort of fear and I start basing my life around how to get rid of that fear and step into my purpose. And when I do that, uh, I, I, I'm able to just gather more and more like value on what life means Mm. to me today. Right. And, and I'm really appreciative of that because finding that balance between alone time and not alone time can be difficult, right? If you're in a family, holy shit. Yeah. From the, from the Mm -hmm. second I get onto my property, anywhere even close to my home, (laughs) I am not alone. Yeah. Well, I'm figuring that out. You know, I'm just not alone, man. If, if it's not one of my three kids or my wife, it's a pet or a friend or a neighbor or, you know, I'm never alone. And so, uh, I know that when I go home yeah. right? and, and I step into that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know me well enough now to know that I need some alone time for a couple of days at a time, yeah, yeah, a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's very healthy for me. And a lot of times, and we've talked about this on the show, some of the practices that we do, and you've done this before too, is, you know, we go out and we venture out either into the wilderness or somewhere on our own. Uh, we don't talk to anybody for a little while. We, we disconnect from the mechanical and technological world and really try to get regrounded out into some place where it's more primal and, and, and things like that. And that's one of the things that Curtis did was get out into the nature. And, and I found 
through all the things that I listen to, you know, I, I go back and forth from, from Zen Buddhism to like atheism to, to whatever other spiritual practice. And I, I try to grab these principles from all these places. And one of the people that I listen to is, uh, Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I think a lot of people have probably heard of him. Uh, but I'll never forget. I hope I never forget that he said one time, you know, if you want to know yourself really well, go into the woods alone, Mm -hmm. spend some time out there by yourself. And, and what I found by doing that is that I'm a fucking mess for about three days. Yeah. My fucking head is scattered. My emotions are a wreck. My fear is up and down. My hunger's all over the place. But after about three days of being out there chilling and going through it, going through the sickness of my addiction to the material world, I end up calming down. Yeah. I end up settling down and I can kind of hear that inner voice of myself reminding me of who I am. Mm-hmm. you know and, and finding the value and what it means to be a father and i start missing my kids you know which is a good thing right yeah. you know it's nice to be able to miss them i start missing my friends i start i start finding and remembering what it meant to have connections with people in sobriety and how fortunate i am to be sober and to have found this path and to have a career that i love and and I start being able to really connect with the blessings of my life and feel all those things, you know, and it's really neat. And that's one of the pros to being able to do that. And right. It's, it's, it's something that I think I'm fortunate to have been able to do. Yeah. And I, I, I think the biggest thing is, um, uh, that, that we don't take it lightly, right? Like for, for me, I'm the same way. Like I love being able to, to get out, um, into nature and really just, disconnect and sit alone and in my case I generally will fast um, and just sit around a fire and meditate and like just feel the earth and feel the fire and feel the air and smell the the you know pine needles and and really just sort of soak that all in and remember like just how truly lucky I am to be this one speck in this vast universe, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and really just get kind of lost with that. And, and, but you're absolutely right. Like this, um, this, it, it takes me some time to like disconnect. Like mm-hmm. usually I'm up there for at least a good, I don't know, day or day and a half before I truly like even forget about the fact that my cell phone's there. Yeah. Right. Um, because otherwise I'm thinking about like, Oh, like what if this person's texting me or, <laughs> or can I play some music or, yeah. you know, like, um, just, just forget about all that and all the work stuff or, um, you know, podcast stuff or family stuff and just truly be present. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I, I, I know for myself that it is something I have to intend to do like I have to um, decide this is what I'm going to do and and go out there and make it happen Um, why why do you have to decide that like because I I what do you mean well like what and what I mean is like I I have to go out there with this intention right Mm -hmm. Um, because if uh, if I if I go out there first of all like going out into the woods alone is dangerous 
Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like it's, it's not something that just anybody should do. Like, um, there's been, there was one time that I went out there where I got kind of lost and for a second I'm like freaking out, you know? Um, and so it really made me think about like the fact that, you know, like this is kind of a dangerous thing and this is, um, you know, how people get lost. You gotta be smart about it. Um, and generally, you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart about it, but I think moreover, like what I mean is like, I go out there with the intention of disconnecting and meditating and trying to become grounded again in like nature and the universe and, and, um, you know, and, and the wonderment of life, um, as opposed to like, no, I'm just going to go camping by myself for yeah. a minute. Um, because if I go camping by myself for a minute, something can really fuck it up. There's people too close to me. Like there's, um, you know, noises happening all like I can hear four wheelers going the whole time. Like I can really get hung up on the idea that, um, you know, it needs to be a specific thing. Whereas if I'm going out there to meditate, like generally I'm just going to roll with the punches a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, um, and just kind of decide that, Hey, this must be what it's supposed to be this time. Yeah. You know? And, and for me on, on, on that same vein, uh, if I don't go out there intentionally knowing that that's what I'm trying to achieve, uh, the, the addict in my head gets really, really loud, you know, like we were talking mm -hmm, about before. Mm -hmm. And if I go out there with the full intention of disconnecting, then when it says, look at your phone, I can say, you know, fuck you. Right. When it, when it says turn around, I can say, fuck you. Mm -hmm. When it, when it says, you know, buy a bunch of candy before you get up there, I right. can say, fuck you. Because those things are inevitably going to pop up for me. But um, when I when I do go out there and I'm set on that one, uh, on that experience with that, knowing that I'm going to be alone, knowing that the addict's going to be there, knowing that the spirit of the universe is going to be there, you know, knowing that those things are going to be in conflict with each other and that I get to be an observer of it and a participate in, uh, participate par participant in it mm -hmm. and I you get to it. you know that word I got I got it I get to like play around with both sides of it and that ultimately I know that I'm grounded in sobriety that I've built a solid foundation uh, of sobriety that staying sober is the most important part of my life that uh, I'm going up there to continue the growth of my sobriety and my spirituality and be a better person when I come off of that alone time, whether it's in a mm -hmm. mountain or, mm -hmm. or wherever, um, then, then I'm able to shut that shit down. And eventually I get into that space where I'm flowing in, in, they call it flow state, right? I'm in flow state. So I'm no longer hungry. I'm no longer afraid. I'm really open to suggestion from the universe. I'm really open mm -hmm. to, um, guidance from my inner self. I'm really listening to, you know, suggestions of where I need growth that are coming from inside of me that um, I would normally not even try to listen to down here because I'm too busy with all yeah, the other too busy. shit. Yeah. And so I really like what you said about that, you know, going up there with intention because uh, intention is so important. And I think it's important to just pay attention to what it is we're fucking trying to do. Right. Yeah. With, with yeah. And let me, I, let me ask you this, like, I have literally gone out there with the intention of, you know, fasting, spending the night in the woods, meditating, building a fire, everything like that. 
And as I'm like gathering firewood or sometimes in my case, like I like to really rough man it and, and build my own shelter. <laughs> okay. Um, which I've stopped doing now because it, it turns into more of a chore. Um, but anyways, have you ever like been up there and, you know, as you're sort of prepping your area, you have these thoughts of what if I just left, went to a hotel room, ordered a pizza, got a sleeve of Oreo cookies, like, and really just nobody knows. Like everybody thinks I'm up here camping. Like I could just go get a room and just really just go to town with all this stuff. Yeah, just only about every 10 steps on my way up there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I think it's so funny sometimes. Like, I, I've accepted it now, but there was uh, there's at least been, you know, a couple of times that I've been up there, and I'm like, really? Like, that? I, I'm just trying to do this thing. Like, <laughs> fucking addict, can't you just leave me alone yeah. for, like, just a little bit? Yeah. And And that's the thing is, like, as I settle into that situation and that ordeal, and, again, navigate around that, right? Um, and play the tape through, um, and really just soak in, you know, uh, this situation, uh, the environment, um, and, and the spiritual nature of what I'm entering into those thoughts dissipate. Yeah. And I'm really just completely present and, and, uh, and a sponge for, like you said, open to receive, you know, which I really, really like. And I think that, um, that, uh, that can be vital for me. It's crucial, you know, yeah. and, um, and I know it was crucial for Curtis yeah. too, like hearing that part of his story where he talks about, um, uh, that journey and you guys will hear it here in a second. Um, it's pretty amazing to see what came from the physical challenge, the isolation, and just really like an, all the newfound information of sobriety, like those, th- those three things kind of combined for him and that ordeal really played a key role in, in sort of opening his mind to this yeah. new way of life. Yep. And I think that, uh, we can all benefit from that. Yeah. Straight so, up. yeah. Like, what do you think? You think, yeah, let's roll it. Want to hear his story? Yeah. All right. Without further or further. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Further ado. Is it further ado? Yeah, we don't know how to. Without further ado, here is Curtis's story. This week's war story is brought to you by Brainwash Coffee. Brainwash Coffee is damn good coffee with a damn good cause. 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community, which is why Brainwash Coffee is the perfect partner for us here at the other side. With blends like Higher Powder and Ego Ain't Your Amigo, Brainwash Coffee has your back no matter what you're putting. Right now, you can get $5 off your coffee order when you use promo code OTHERSIDE at brainwashcoffeeco.com. Clean your bean with Brainwash. And without further ado, here is this week's sports story. Hey everybody, uh, excited to be doing this. My name is Curtis Waslow. I am 10 months sober and uh, founder of the Sober app. Uh, I'll talk more about that in my, you know, later half of my successes, but uh, my addiction to alcohol and cocaine over the last 
15, 20 years of my life, kind of, that's what I'm going to dig into. I didn't have a, a war story. I didn't, I, you know, I had a war story, but it was a little different. You know, you hear about drug addiction and you think, you know, trauma or living on the streets. Um, I wasn't like that. I grew up in Maple Ridge, British Columbia, just outside Vancouver, Canada. I had an amazing family. My parents are still together. Three older siblings were all really close, best friends growing up. We're all two years apart. Um, having three older siblings, you know, I wasn't bullied in school. I, having three older siblings, I would always follow in their footsteps. When I got into elementary school, everyone knew me. When I got into high school, everyone knew me. Everyone in the town of Maple Ridge, you know, you're, you're a Waslow, you're set, you know. We're a very popular family. My parents were socialites, parties, you know, family dinners every week, couple of times, you know drinking it was just it was the norm um so having the three older siblings and my parents being you know social I you know got into drinking probably when I was about 13 I think 12 13 trying it out um garage my parents brewed their own wine so there's always white wine that they brewed on their own hundreds of bottles in the garage you would sneak some I'm first time I ever got uh drunk or high was when I was 13 came home, my brother was having a house party and his buddy owned a skate store and I was really big into skateboarding. And uh, they said, you know, if you, you know, do a beer bong and uh, take a bong hoot and I'll give you a free skateboard tomorrow, like $150 skateboard. And I'm like, done. And I did it. And I was probably 110 pounds soaking wet at that age. Um, and I was, you know, put me on my ass, but I liked the feeling of it. It was cool. And not only that, being around everyone, he was like, yeah, Kurt, that was kind of, I think, what I like more is being a part of something. Um, and, you know, going through high school, like I said, I was always, a, I was very popular. I wasn't, uh, I was always part of the in crowd and, you know, drinking became a part of the in crowd, smoking weed became a part of the in crowd. I never experienced with myself. I never experienced with hard drugs till about 16 when ecstasy came into play, um, house parties, party buses, um, and then I told myself I would never do anything more. I told myself I would never touch cocaine. Um, all of my older buddies were into it. My brothers were getting into it. 17, 18, that's when it, uh, ecstasy kind of switched over to MDMA. And it was more of a natural high, less of a come down. You weren't mixing everything. That's when music festivals started. Um, my brother sold weed in high school. And I kind of got into that throughout most of my later high school years um didn't really I worked my ass off though I was never I was never like uh, I was never lazy I had my first job when I was 13 working in a cedar mill 12 hour days four days on four days off like I just I I, I was I was always a hustler so when I got and found you know I could sell weed and make some money and do that I got into that um and then after graduation uh, you know it was just normal partying um wasn't doing drugs every day or anything. It was like a couple times a month, big events, birthdays, big celebrations, music festivals, um, weekend drinking, maybe a midweek uh, bonfire or some something like that. It wasn't. I didn't need it. Um, as my younger twenties rolled in, partying got, you know, a little more, but it was sustainable. I was, you know, relationships and stuff ended because of it, but I was still. I was managing one of the biggest gyms in British Columbia. Uh, after that, I started three companies. I had a nonprofit. I was, you know, it, it didn't really affect my life until probably I was about 22, 23. And that's when I, you know, I started losing jobs because I wasn't showing up because I was hungover and started 
doing um that's when i got you know probably 22 21 was when i started dabbling in the coke and it got you know more and more and that progressed not crazy um drinking and drugs cocaine i mean i should say i smoked weed here and there but it wasn't like some people that smoked it every day i was just i would do it here and there take one little puff and i'd be on my ass but uh it was more the uh, the alcohol and the cocaine um it just made me feel freaking alive and it made me feel like uh, the cocaine actually made me feel like i belonged i don't know why even when no one else was doing it it made me feel like i belonged in my own self i had a lot of you know I was an, I was an insecure kid, maybe because growing up, I was living in my older siblings shoes. I never really found who I was or what I was. I was always kind of pushed into something just because my family and my brothers and, you know, I just became them. And when I'd be out with friends, the best friends since high school, you know, I'd be sitting there drinking, like, I don't belong here. I, do they, do, I don't even think they like me, blah, 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 just rolling in my head. And I just had these thoughts and the cocaine really kind of stopped that. Um, but it was still kind of a party drug at that point. Um, you know, I was, it was a good fun time. I didn't use it to hide any major emotions or feelings or trauma or anything. Cause I didn't have that. But, uh, when I was about 23, I was in between jobs and I got connected with some friends back from my hometown. I was living in Vancouver, the city then. And, um, they were really big into this. This was before the weed was legal yet in Canada, but it was big in Vancouver. There's still, uh, there was, you know, you could buy it in stores and stuff. It was just a gray area, but they had, um, they had built up this little empire and they loved me since high school and said, Hey, why don't you know so many people? Why don't you get in on this with us? So then I hopped in on that and, you know, a year down year after that, just boom, making crazy money. Um, got to the point where me and a friend had a big, big gig going on. We were flying stuff across Canada. We were, it was like the movies. We were hopping on airplanes with suitcases full of marijuana, um, had it down, you know, burner phones, freaking three apartments in Vancouver. He had a Bentley we were driving around with. We were, we were, we were rock stars. We were going to Cancun, play with Carmen every other weekend when we weren't there, we we're in Vegas, probably two, three times a month. Um, living the high life, man, making, thousands and thousands a day and uh that lasted the heavy part of that lasted a year and that's when cocaine progressed but again it was still partying it was like freaking we're rock stars let's do it um come 25 two years later is somewhat like a movie i wanted to get out i had you know shit ton of money saved up and i was going to get into, you know, real estate and go back to school and set myself up for the future. This wasn't a life thing for me, like it was for my buddies. So I set up some people that I knew on the East coast and went out to introduce them. And the last two months, the Canadian special drug task force had been watching us. And in that hotel where I was introducing them, they busted the door down, guns a blazing, got thrown in jail. Um, and I got released on bail, but, uh, that's, that was, that was my first kind of probably big trauma. You know, that was not easy going home to my family. I was on the CBC news, um, which is like, you know, Fox news out here, CNN, I was all across every, every friend family saw me on the news for two days. Um, it was one of the biggest drug busts in, uh, Newfoundland history. 
And um, yeah, so I came home and I, my family, my siblings picked me up from the airport four days later. Um, after I just spent three or four nights in a Newfoundland, it's called her Queen's Majesty Prison. It's one of the oldest prisons in Canada. Um, it was brutal. Just no sleep, junkies coming in every thing, trying to fight me, smashing their heads against the wall, fighting with guards. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So I was happy to be home. I went home, kind of told my family everything. But that's when the burden of, you know, guilt, shame started hitting me hard and failure, especially. Um, the, I went out to my parents that night when my siblings picked me up. Next day, I went back to my place in Vancouver and called my dealer right away. And that's that moment was when cocaine became more medicinal than just a party drug. That's when I started doing it on my own. The waking up every morning with anxiety and stress from everything I had done and building up these thing ideas in my head that my whole life was a failure, um, that all these other things you know, running these successes that most people would think of running massive gyms and owning businesses at the age of 19, 20 was more in my head. I made it out to be like, yeah, but you, they didn't go anywhere. You're a failure. You suck, blah, blah, blah. And um, not to mention in between then all the stress of um, this possibly going to jail. Um, this, that, that trial lasted three years. Um, all my money was gone. Um, I had people threatening my lives. They thought I was a rat because I didn't end up going to prison. I put all my money into the best lawyers in Canada, um, with my dad's help. And I was the one that got out. They said, you know, there's enough evidence against him to become innocent. And once that happened, I had people threatening my lives, showing up in my house. Um, I walk in the streets in Vancouver. I, I got jumped several times. I was at a restaurants, just beaten to shit. People calling me rats. Um, so there was just a lot of kind of a black cloud over me for a while. And, you know, I was using cocaine three, four times a week, um, as the years progressed, you know, it was every single day into the point where the last four years, probably since 26, 27 to 10 months ago, I was using it every single day. I just, it was the only thing that made me feel normal. Um, when I, I, you know, I just didn't feel like, not that I deserved to live or anything, but I just didn't, I didn't know what I was living for anymore. Um, but I got to the really good point of hiding it because the last thing after all this guilt and shame and failure was now to come out and tell everyone I'm a drug addict. So I couldn't do that. So that would just be, it put me over the edge. I kept thinking to myself, nope, you're either going to, get clean on your own and just no one's going to know and no one will ever know you're a drug addict or you're going to die from this. And I accepted that. Um, and I was at the point where, you know, I had, I was living with someone, uh, a partner for four years and she had no idea. My family had no idea. Um, my work, never any sign of it. I just got so good at hiding it and lying to the point where I would start writing down my lies in books. And so I wouldn't get caught up on another lie um and then it got to the point where I tried doing little stints of not drinking or you know doing coke for two days and I couldn't last more than that and I told myself you know it's probably you know you had this thought a couple of years ago where you're gonna get clean on your own or you're gonna die from this and now it was at the point where I'm 
going to die with it or die from it. And especially with all the fentanyl going around and, you know, 80% of cocaine had it in Vancouver at that point. And it was, it scared the shit out of me, but I just, I, 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 yeah, I couldn't stop. And I was too scared of the shame and guilt that came from announcing it to the world or my, especially my, was more my friends and family than anything, letting them down once more. Um, but it got to the point where my lies caught up with me and my fam, my brother kept, you know, poking around saying, is everything okay? Everything okay. And the partner I was living with at the time knew something was up. Um, something came up where, you know, someone had messed her saying, you know, Kurt's supposed to do this job. He owes me three grand. What's going on here? Um, and that's where, you know, I said, I've got this opportunity right now. I don't want to do this anymore this is the pointer time or else now I'm just going to lose even more. And I, one of the hardest moments of my life when I looked them in the eye and I said, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. And, um, it was scary. I broke down in tears. I cried all night never cried that hard in my life, just shaking, trembling. Um, my siblings, couple siblings, um, they brother came over right away with his girlfriend. We talked all night. And from that point on, it was a good turning point. You know, I went to bed that night um, feeling better. I woke up the next morning, like this huge weight had been lifted off my shoulder. Um, I started making, you know, I said it in the next morning, the next day I was at a psychology appointment, talking to a counselor or a psychologist. Um, I was doing smart recovery online three days a week. Uh, still, I went back to work a few days later. I hadn't told my family, I hadn't told my parents yet. Uh, my mom was going through chemotherapy. She had just got cancer about six months before that. So I didn't want to burden them with more stress, especially when she's healing. Uh, so that was one thing that really killed me inside was not being, not being honest with my parents. Um, they had supported me so much. Right. So uh, three weeks into being sober, I lost three weeks. I killed it. Um, and that was uh, the person I was living with at the time. She went away, thought everything was going to be fine. I kept telling her everything was going to be fine, knowing the moment she went away, that would be my chance to just one last time, get it out of your system, you know? And, you know, she'll never know. They'll never know. No one will know because I'm on my own in the apartment. I got to go to work today and then boom, it's a weekend. And then I'll leave tomorrow morning, go to my side job and no one will ever know clean up nice and no not the way it works or at least the universe didn't want it to work like that for me so that all came out the next day I was lost lost all that life um apartment we had built um I was living on a friend's sofa for a week uh two weeks actually just depressed that's when it hit me hard you know before I was getting sober for everyone else you know, I was getting sober for my siblings. I was getting sober for that person at the time. And this is when it was like, fuck, I can't do it for that. I need to get sober for myself. Like, can't just keep getting sober. And then once I have a scapegoat where I can, you know, go away for a weekend and do it all again, then what's the use, right? And you're just going to turn back to your old, old ways. So I got my own place in like a shared house, like a little bedroom, a little kind of a dump um and just started secluded myself for one and then started putting in the work um 
I was always, like I said, a hustler and a self-educator. If I didn't know something, I learned it, whether it was through a book or a video or an audio. So that's what I did. I, uh, I sat down in my room and I went to the library and I got about 10 books on addiction and recovery and I read them the first week. Went back to the library. I was taking about three, four books a day. I would wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. I'd read till 8 p.m. or 8, 8 a.m., sorry, till I had to go to work. I'd come home from work and I'd just keep reading and started a new social media account, which helped a lot. And I just, I educated myself on how the, why the brain was doing what it was doing and why I was doing what I was doing. And it, that was my first step of getting, getting sober and it worked. Um, and then I got to the point where I was like, you know, this can't be it. And I'm scared I'm going to fall into the same routine. Um, it's just, this just can't be it. I just don't feel, I feel sober, but I feel like I'm starting to get happy again, but I still didn't have that joy, that happiness waking up that I knew was on the other side of sobriety that I'd seen on people's social medias, you know, that I'd read in these books. Uh, and I was really big into cycling at the time of well, I was, I was forced to be really big into cycling because I lost my license for a few years before that. So I was biking to work every day. I was cycling a lot. I, I enjoyed it. So, um, two and a half months into my sobriety, I hopped, I bought a new bike and I flew to Seattle cause the borders were still closed, but you're allowed to fly down. I brought shit ton of gear with me and I just hit the road I said I wanted to bike the Pacific Coast Highway and my family was like you're fucking nuts but do it man do whatever makes you happy and it was scary for me for sure because what you know I didn't like being in my own head that's you know when I got on my own that's when I turned to drugs and alcohol because I didn't really like the thoughts that were happening in my head they started going away more as I got sober but you know, I was, it was like, shit, I'm going to go on this bike trip all by myself in the middle of the wilderness and pushing myself and being literally stuck in my head the whole day. It can go one of two ways. It can be great or it can be really bad. And uh, luckily for me, it was a trip of a lifetime. It changed my life. It propelled my sobriety tenfold. And I would wake up every morning and just ride for eight to 10 hours a day further than I'd ever ridden ever. Like I was, I would train, I would ride one, I would ride one big bike ride a week before that. It's all I really had to train. And I was doing more in two weeks each day. You know, I was riding, um, longest ride I'd ever done was 45 K and I was riding about 75 to 80 a day through some of the hilliest terrain through Washington. No, no turning back. There's no, there's no towns. There's no cities for two days um through the olympic national uh park and small campgrounds it was starting to come into fall so the campgrounds were dead i it was raining start of fall it it pushed me mentally and physically to the point where i'm like holy shit like this is a whole other chapter of my life i, I know i can do if i can do this i know i can do every anything and that was just the beginning that was the first two weeks i uh my bike was falling apart on me until I got it wicked into shape. Like I was doing all the work on my own, fixing it up. Um, to one weekend, I, I spilled, a, I was camping, I was cooking pasta and I spilled the pot on my shoe. 
with my foot. I got a third degree burns across my entire foot. Kept riding. <laughs> um, two weeks later, I got Achilles tendonitis in my right ankle. Kept riding. Got it in my left ankle. I was riding for two weeks with Achilles tendonitis in both ankles. I had to lower my days, but I just pushed through it. And every night at the camp, I would find a campground. And every night I would sit there and think about my life and what I had done and what I had done that day. And it was almost like every day I was riding, you know, everyone said, Oh, just throw on music, throw on audiobooks," But I didn't, I just was, it was just me in the road. And it was almost like I was meditating the entire time. First couple of weeks, I was thinking a lot, but after that, it was like, I was just meditating almost like just no thought and being alone in my own head became the norm. And it was something that I now loved and as the weeks went on, I just grew so much as a person and like, and that's why I created my new account. Uh, it was at that right now it's the sober nomad, but before it was, this, it was the sober rider. And I started posting all my photos and all these sober people kept following me and just reaching out to me and this community built on my little Instagram and you know, I was supposed to go all the way to San Diego, but I got, I got to a point where I was in San Francisco. I went to Yosemite cause I'd always want, I'd always want to see it. And once I hit Yosemite, I was only supposed to be there, I think for two nights and I spent four nights there and I just didn't want to leave. It was like my little Haven. And, uh, it was just me doing hikes every day on my own and just watching the stars at night by a campfire. And it just hit me like, man, I'm okay to be on my own now. I'm okay. I don't have any of these negative thoughts. I'm so proud of myself for what I've done. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been proud of myself. Uh, so got back into service. I head back to San Francisco and instead of going another two weeks, I just called my mom. I was like, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to start my new life. This new sober life. And, uh, I did, I flew home the next morning, uh, got home, got a new place. And, uh, that's when I really wanted to do more with my recovery. Uh, my entrepreneur kind of mindset, my hustler mindset kicked in and I started researching ideas. I'd always been into tech, good technology and I started reaching out to people with these ideas and I finally found a platform that allowed me to kind of create this and another sober app, you might say, but one where you could learn from all these people I had just learned with the last five months um rather than have an app tell you what to do every day it was going to be people like myself or people podcasters like you guys or people like danny and mike fior and lc and sober onions podcast crystal moral all these people that had taught me how to live a happy sober life and uh it was going to be like courses but it's evolved into so much more and that's when the sober app kind of came about and Danny came on board with me as my business partner. And, you know, that's evolved so much more now too. And uh, yeah, so we've just, we've created an app where it's just this huge community of people who have succeeded in sobriety and now want to help others live a happy life sober. Um, a lot of us, we get sober, we hit this wall where like with me before my bike trip, where it's like, this just, this can't be it. There's gotta be more to life than this. Um, just trying not to drink every day. Can't be the rest of my life. And I think we've, uh, 
created, we've got, you know, over 4,000 hours of content, uh, YouTube videos, podcasts, original courses. We're going to start be doing a lot of live events in May where, you know, we want to show people that getting sober, getting sober is the first part, but living sober and living happy is something like no other, especially when we're living in a world so consumed by alcohol. Uh, there's just such a big life out there for you once you get sober and stay sober and start finding the things that make you happy and for me now after that bike trip and this app and having this community of friends and collaborators I wake up every morning with joy um the same joy I used to have as a kid when I would see a playground or my parents would say okay you can go ride your bike before dinner and I would hit the slopes and the forests or go catching frogs it's like that's that joy that you know everyone dreams of that happiness I guess and I can assure you that you know get like I said getting sober is one thing and then staying sober and learning from others and seeing what makes you happy there's it's it's a powerful thing so you can find us our our app's called the sober app um you can find us on Instagram at the sober.app um you can find us uh, our links are all in our bio we were on the app uh google play store we're on the apple store you can use us on the browser version um we've got big things coming this is just kind of our first version and we are a second version which we're going to redevelop the entire app is going to be going to be mind-blowing unlike you know we've got our tracking in our communities like all the other apps have but our community of actual live events we're going to have, we're going to, you know, we've got fitness, we've got yoga, we've got nutrition, we've got, you know, urges, how to fight urges and deal with emotions and narcissists in your life. And every, every category you can think of, there's going to, there's videos for that and audios, and we're going to have courses almost every day, one or two courses. So hit us up, check us out and reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at the dot sober dot nomad and check out our sober app page the sober dot app wow yeah, yeah. And that, that's a powerful story yeah that was amazing learning from others and and i liked how if you if you watch if you notice the way that he speaks from like like his demeanor of what his life used to be like and what it's like now there's a difference oh yeah in the way that he yeah, presented you can, himself. You can right? hear like sort of some of the excitement like in the early days. And then when he as he goes on and the disease progresses, you can hear it in his tone. Yeah. Like he I mean, it sounds like he's back there in a way, like yeah. sort of reliving each step of that moment. Um, and I know that after he got off his uh his story with you when when you guys did the story. He went out on Instagram and just said, Hey guys, like I just had a really powerful experience yeah. and this is why we do what we do. And, um, and so yeah, it was thank you, Curtis. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. Uh, dude, his story was nuts. Yeah. I mean, just really a little, a little different. I feel like, um, I mean different, but the same, you right. know, um, I really yeah. liked knowing that like he had that good upbringing because we we don't all come from broken homes, right? Right. And like his his um, alcoholism or his addiction was not an escape for him. It was more of like he was a partier. He was just a recreational yeah. user. Um, and then eventually, you know, and he talks about it very clearly, like when it became 
mm-hmm. medicinal for him. Yeah, um, after some it, trauma. Yeah, and it crossed that line. Yeah. Yeah, the so. cops kicking in your door is fucking... It's a little intense. That'll wake you up in the yeah. morning. Yeah. It's a little intense, especially when you're on your way out, you know, like he was. You're like, you know, I'm fucking done, man. Here's here's a position for you if you want it. And, of mm-hmm. course, somebody's always going to want it. There's always going to be somebody that wants what the, the seeming glory that comes along with, you know, fast money and, right, right. and parties. And, you know, he was partying at a, at a high level, right? Uh, and so... Like, like that's very attractive to the young addict. It's very attractive to the young partier, obviously. Well, it's very attractive yeah. to me now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what movies are made right. of, right? Like, we've watched these kind of things, and, and our imaginations get the better of us, and consequences go out the window. We don't think about that kind of shit, but you saw what happened with him. All of his money was gone. Yep. He just started getting fucking beat up. Because obviously, if you don't go to jail, you're a fucking narc. Right. Even though, even though that's not even true, mm-hmm. right? That's just a that's 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 your friends on a street level. Yeah, right? that's that's what a street level friendship is. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't die or go to prison, then you're fucking breaking the rules. You should have died or went to prison, and 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 so you know, coming out of that it leaves you kind of fucking broken spiritually emotionally and oh yeah you know he continued to try to find uh relief in the same place that he lost it yeah just like so many of us do the insanity uh becoming like deep in the lies like which i never wrote my lies down but fucking i never told the truth like everybody just (laughs) you know but like at that same stage just before getting sober like pretty much if i opened my mouth everybody already fucking knew i was lying yeah right but see you heard it there you heard it there in his story like he talked about um that moment with his partner who was was going to give him some time so that he could get over this and get sober and he knew he knew in the back of his mind the minute that she left that he he was gonna get into all this dirty shit one more good yeah one more time one more good one yeah and uh, and and that i mean that and that's what we're talking about here yeah is 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 learning to to know the difference between like when it's the disease talking and when it's the solution talking um and uh, when he when he did finally come around to it and after he read all those books you know I, i found it interesting because uh what what i think he did was he educated himself on the disease right he educated himself on it so that when he did go out and ride the the pacific coast highway by himself mm-hmm. his mind was completely saturated with information on what was going on and so i think that's what we're talking about on this yeah. entire topic oh, is yeah. when we're when we're saturated and educated on what's going on i think being able to go out and be alone, be by yourself and grow spiritually is definitely something that you're free to do. We yeah. didn't get sober to live a life of chained to a fucking, you know, a, a meeting table or chained to a fucking screen or chained to something. We, we got sober to be unchained from the disease of addiction, to move forward into a life that we're, that we're not willing to give up for a drink and have new experiences that help us grow and enjoy this one life that we have. And that's, exactly what he did yeah absolutely and and now you know the sober app we're on the sober app um you know the other side of hell podcast is on the sober app 
Uh, Danny is amazing. Mike is over yeah. there now. What I love that is that he he took all that information and and all like everything that he wished he had had right in those early days, which was like easy access to all the information right. that he had just acquired, and that entrepreneur spirit that he talks about. He took all that and invested it into the Silver app, and so um, he has collected all these resources, which are now available to people in recovery or people that are, you know, sober curious or, or whatever the case may be, um, so that it can assist you in your journey because we cannot do this alone. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's just really cool how he's turned all that and, and turned turned it around and, and, and into a tool for other people yeah. who are broken. Um, and damage just like we were to use. Yep. So great resource. Yeah. Great story. Way cool story. Good topic. Good dude. Yeah. Good topic. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, great. how's that been? How you How you feel? I feel great. I'm I'm yeah. really excited. Yeah. You good with that show? <laughs> Which one? The one. Do you want to re-record it? This one. The one we just did. No. Want you to don't? Put, I want to put it out there for people to enjoy. All right. And I just kind of feel like we should do the whole thing over. Ah, Jordan wasn't recording. Oh. <laughs> well, this has been great, man. Really yeah. uh, awesome topic. Good to be back in the studio. I am excited. Thank you, everybody, for being patient with us while we go to this semi-weekly schedule. If you heard that announcement, we are going to a semi-weekly schedule just for a moment. Um, while we continue to expand and grow things in a new and exciting way. Yep. Um, so that being said, we will see you in another couple of weeks. And remember, you are worth the work. We'll see you on the other side. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.